arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. from America for a little less than two days. I've been very interested in the things I saw while passing over southern England and France, and I wasn't in any hurry to get back home. (laughs) But by the time I'd spent a week in France, and a short time in Belgium, in England, and it opened a few cables from the United States, I found that it didn't have much to say about how long I was going to stay over there. The ambassador in London said that it wasn't in order to come back home, but there'd be a battleship waiting in a few days. I thought I'd bring in an actual recording of Charles Lindbergh at City Hall on June 13, 1927. In tonight's episode, as Charlie and Jamal prepare to travel via plane to Boston, we'll meet one of my favorite characters. The man's personality is 100% the personality of a friend of mine from years ago. I've found very rarely does 100% transfer of personality from real life to a novel character take place. The character Langley in Once in a Lifetime is the cowboy type of guy who can fly Charlie and Jamel where they need to go. Giff and the Bureau of Investigation are following in the rearview mirror. In this episode, Jamel's background becomes clear for Charlie and we get a glimpse of Babe Ruth up close. I refrain from extended conversations by historical figures. Doing that runs the risk of distorting history with a subjective narrative. Here is episode three of Once in a Lifetime by Robert P. Fitton. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 12. What does Gifford think we've done? asked Charlie as he swung around a slow-moving car and sped onto the main road. Ellery filled up the passenger side. He raised his thick brows, seemingly unaffected by the gun in the wild ride through New Jersey. You're an anarchist, aren't you? I assure you we're not, said Jamel from the back seat. Charlie, this could have been averted. Charlie looked in the mirror. You don't know that. I wasn't going to take the chance. Yeah, but you wanted chemicals. You can't make bombs. It's against the law. Ellery, do we look like bomb makers? asked Charlie. Giff was about to close out the case. You're kidding, asked Charlie. He brought the car toward the bridge. Somebody put the squeeze on him, didn't they? You know I can't tell you that. I didn't think so, but I know he was pressured. Charlie moved onto the bridge and crossed the river back toward New York. In the haze, the tower extended skyward above the city buildings. Then he checked in the mirror as he cruised by the other cars. With Gifford no longer in pursuit, he veered to the right, and once in New York, he turned onto a side street. He quickly pulled to the curb next to the corner market. We're going to bid you a goodbye, Ellery. You are? 
Charlie kept the gun pointed at him. Listen, we're not anarchists. Tell Gifford that, will you? Why the neon? Sometimes there are things you just don't want to know. You got a family? Ellery furrowed his thick brow as he nodded. I live with my mother. Charlie pulled out his smooth, freshly printed Yankee tickets and handed them to the agent. I don't think we'll be using these. Well, that's awful nice of you, considering you're both really going to be in big trouble for this. Tell your mother to enjoy the game now. Get out. Ellery opened the door and backed out onto the sidewalk. Then he leaned in the window. Hey, Russo, are you sure you're not an anarchist? I'm sure. Charlie lobbed the gun outside. He shifted as the gun bounced off the building and onto the sidewalk. And then he skidded away. You made the right move, Charlie, said Jamel from the back seat. I did? He asked, screeching the tires at the corner. I wasn't sure whether my plan would work. She put her hand on his shoulder. I need that neon. Without it, my transmitter is useless. It has to be that cold, he asked, close to it. He looked into her bright eyes. At least we have that professor's name, and they'll be watching him like a hawk. He looked into her bright eyes. And us. Going back to his own apartment would be dumb. Charlie drove the 62 to Jamel's flat and parked in the side alley. They ate lunch, and Jamel continued building the transmitter. Charlie sat on the sofa outside her work area. As the afternoon breezes ruffled the curtains, he jotted down the Yankee averages from the radio broadcast. He stood, beer in hand, and walked barefoot into the back room. I wish they'd broadcast the games. Oh, you'll have to wait 12 years, she said from below. They could make some money on that right now. What station? WABC. Make a note of it. Funny. How's it going? Jamel, under the bottom panels, looked up. Well, I was thinking we should call Friedman. Jamel, I don't think you understand. Buckley has already told Gifford the whole story, believe me. They've already notified Friedman and they have people watching him. We may have no choice, Charlie, said Alf. Alf is right. If the Vegas break through the continuum and stop me, they will have succeeded in destroying everything in the future. Charlie sidestepped to the wall map and studied the depiction of North America as he paced. Then we have to start checking more chemical companies. Somebody should have cold neon canisters. I know. They'll, they'll... He heard a crash out front and spilled his beer across the floor. Someone kicked in the outside door, and Gifford marched into the flat. Elf beeped, and the inner door began to close. But Gifford wedged it open. Holding his gun in the air, he and Ellery and the mustache guy burst into the back area. Hello, Ellery, said Jamel as she stood in front of the transmitter. Hello, Jamel. What is this, old home week, Ellery? Gifford gawked at the wall projection in the transmitter. What in the name of Thomas Edison is going on here? Are you responsible for this? I am. Charlie moved closer to Jamel. How did you find us? That, Russo, is a state secret. Cop called our office. Gifford pointed at Ellery. Ellery? They followed you over here, Charlie. Gifford faced Ellery. Listen, we're not on a personal basis with these individuals, and we don't have to explain ourselves. Then he looked up at the map and put his gun away as the mustache man snooped around the chrome transmitter dish. I suggest for your own safety that you touch nothing, said Jamel. Gifford grimaced. Do as she says, Perkins. 
I need to write something to your boss, said Jamel. My boss? asked Gifford. I have a pen, said Ellery. Ellery! Gifford tightened his face as she panned the apartment. Again, what the hell is going on here? I will explain everything in a statement. Gifford crossed his arms and exhaled. All right, write up what you know and I'll get it to the boss. Ellery handed the pen to Jamel and she took out a sheet of paper from the desk. As she wrote furiously, Gifford positioned Perkins and Ellery at the door, but stroked his chin as he studied the room. He walked over to the transmitter and squinted as he looked down at Elf. You still think we're anarchists, Giff? asked Charlie. Don't call me Giff. It's Agent Gifford. Gifford pushed his lips. He moved closer to Charlie and spoke in a lower voice. Russo, this is incredible. Who is she? Oh, just a girl I met at Yankee Stadium. I suppose you took my tickets for Ellery. Gifford shook his head. I hate the Yankees. Dodgers fan? No, Giants. I like the old-fashioned game. He walked toward Jamel, still writing at the desk. You done? Almost. She folded the paper and handed it to Gifford. I have no phone, but I would advise you that you get to a telephone and personally read this to your boss. Gifford glanced at the paper and laughed. You're in no position to be dictating to me. We're taking you out of here. I don't have time. You better make the time, Mr. Gifford. There are some serious allegations concerning your boss written on that paper. Allegations that can be made public very easily. Allegations that will destroy him. Come on. Gifford shook his head. Bring them down to the car. Mr. Gifford, you really should review what I wrote. I don't have to review anything. Perkins, have offices outside seal this place. As Perkins and Ellery encircled Charlie, Gifford moved out in front and casually unfolded the letter. Then he stopped and read what she had written. Oh, dear God! I would call your boss directly. Gifford held the letter in one hand and gestured with his other hand. This is disgusting! I would verify it, said Jamel. You wouldn't want something like that to come out. Hey, don't try and weasel your way out of this! I don't know what the hell's going on here, but he glanced down at the letter again. Then he spun around. Hold them right here. I'll be right back. Ellery shrugged his wide shoulders, and Perkins brought them back to the transmitter room. Charlie pulled Jamel near the map and whispered in her ear, What's in the letter? Something only a person from the future who has studied the past would know. And you're sure this will work? No. Forty-five minutes later, his face pale as if he were ill, Gifford staggered past the cop standing in the outside doorway. He shut the door gently, walked to the back room, and gulped before he spoke. We apologize for breaking into your apartment, Rousseau, and for our presence here in this place, Jamel. Charlie grinned and looked at Jamel. She stepped up to Gifford. We may need your help. Oh, I am under orders to help you, he said, motioning to his men. Put your guns away, boys. Everyone back to the car. Get the cops out of here. You saw nothing here, Ellery, understand? Ellery nodded and looked at Charlie as he left. Thanks for the tickets, Charlie. Charlie waved as Gifford, now alone in the room, faced them. He handed a card to Jamel, shook his head, and then thought for a while. You know, I read that damn thing ten more times in the car and I waited 20 minutes before I placed the call. I thought it was the most bizarre thing I have ever heard of. 
In fact, I still can't believe it. But if it wasn't true, we'd be bringing you in right now. It's blackmail. Blackmail. Sometimes blackmail is a necessary ingredient of strategy, Mr. Gifford. I can assure you. However, we are not subversives, and we have no plans against your government. We are not going to hurt anyone. Gifford looked up at the map projection and the transmitter one more time. I understand, I think. Listen, if you need anything, call. I may do that, Mr. Gifford. Goodbye, Giff. Gifford's face remained blank as he turned. Goodbye, Russo. He walked across the wooden floor, and the outside door shut quickly. Charlie turned to Jamel. Jamel, what was inside that letter? If you live long enough, she said, counting the decades out on her fingers, I suppose you'll have to make it into your 80s and you'll find out. State secrets? State secrets, love. State secrets. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 13 Less than a week after Gifford's raid, Charlie arrived late in the afternoon with several grocery bags. Within the glowing green light below the transmitter, Jamal pushed the optical magnifiers over her forehead. Charlie set down the bags. Fruits, vegetables, and meats. I need that neon, cooled to minus 20 degrees Celsius. Doesn't come with a meal, he replied. Charlie, in a few hours I'll be done with the working parts of this transmitter. No archives, but working parts. Let's have Gifford call our buddy Friedman. He took her hand, pulling her up as she fully removed the magnifiers. You need to get away from this, Jamal. You're pushing yourself too hard. Let's go to the ballpark or to a movie. I'm so close. I need that neon, the neon cooled, to minus 20 degrees Celsius. I know. He led her from the transmitter. Nothing is more important. I'll tell you about important. Ruth has 41 home runs. He just hit another one over the roof in St. Louis. I wish they'd start broadcasting the game, said Charlie. I know, 1939 WABC. The colonel thought broadcasting games would take away from the attendance. Charlie pointed at the box. I was just wondering whether Gehrig or Ruth himself will break Ruth's home run record. I am under orders, Charlie, not to divulge any of the records. You sound like Gifford, but that tells me that one of them will do it. Who is it, Alf? Gehrig did it, didn't he? The record was broken by... Yes, said Charlie, leaning closer. I could make a fortune on this. By... Rudolph Valentino. Valentino's been dead for over a year. I'm making some supper, and then maybe we'll go out somewhere, call Gifford, and have the stuff shipped down here. As he spoke, red lights flashed above on the map projection. A series of warning buzzes shook his nerves, and illuminated running equations covered the screen. An orange trail now swept across the map. She stood and rushed up to the panels. Three distinct perforated lines moved across North America toward upstate New York. She rubbed her knuckles nervously over her chin as Charlie leaned on the counter. Another false alarm, or did they really break through? She stared at the map and checked Elf's screen. Then she looked up. This is real. My God, I think they've figured it out. What do you mean? asked Charlie as he ran up to her. 
three breaks, three shifts, not my friends, of VG's. He held her shoulders. Are you sure? Yes. We only sent back one ship. One ship. I had prayed this wouldn't happen. But these ships have come back before the first ship. She closely checked the readings as Charlie's heart pounded. I don't know how advanced their tracking instruments are, Charlie, but there's no way to stop them tracking down my own trail from upstate. But you arrived several months ago. No, there are still remnants of my trail. Right. We need to crate the transmitter and get it into the tower right now. Now? I thought you needed the neon. I do. But I know the Avegis will come to the city. We need to have the transmitter safely in the tower until I can finish it. She spent the next few minutes sitting on a wooden crate and technically discussed the situation with Elf. As she enlarged the screen, the three Rera ships were within a mile of Jamal's upstate landing site near Niagara Falls. She remained dogged in her determination but cautious. Jamal, those creatures, even if they can change shape and form, are not from this world. They know nothing about Earth, especially the Earth of 1927. They don't know what we know. That gives us a major advantage. When you have the advantage, you win ball games. She nodded. True, but they have the means and the desire to destroy us, Charlie. What if they find out where my Rara ship came in? What if they follow my trail? What if, what if, I'm not going to live my life on what ifs anymore. I'm calling Herbie and we'll get the transmitter over to the tower. Then we'd get the neon and broadcast into the stars called Capella. We need the archives, love. That first Rara ship has to come back or we don't have the archives. Without the history of what happened, we don't stand a chance. Herbie, always cooperative, made a special trip to the tower. They unloaded the crate from a truck below the lobby. The mounting pressure caused Charlie to smoke constantly. He not only tried to imagine these beings, but also worried about Gifford. Even though the Bureau of Investigation had promised to leave them alone, Charlie thought Gifford lurked somewhere in the shadows, and calling him to help with the neon would alert these Avegis if he talked with his office. Herbie suggested they keep the crate in the massive storage area below the building. But the excess basement humidity alarmed Jamel. She selected an alternative site, an isolated galley storage area. No one would be allowed in that room, and Herbie would install a new lock and check it periodically. When Jamel deemed all the criteria had been met, they rolled the large crate into the elevator and traveled upward. The crate cleared the doorway by less than a half an inch. Once in the storage area, she covered the crate and her tools with Herbie's brown canvas tarps. Herbie never asked any questions. He arranged for smaller everyday maintenance items to be placed conveniently in front of the canvas. After Herbie locked the door, Charlie shook his hand before his friend entered the elevator. The doors closed and Charlie walked with Jamel across the gallery. How can they assume human form? Isn't there any way to know what we might be seeing is not human? Visually, no. Elf can track them when they're in their Avigis form, but when they appear as humans, the readings might or might not be human. Charlie put out his cigarette. That's not good. We need to be armed. She seemed reluctant to agree with him, but quickly realized she had no choice. What happens if we try to bump off one of these Avigis? I don't know if a bullet can penetrate the outer sheath, and you don't want to be standing next to them if that happens. Let's get back to the flat. It's imperative we find another apartment, Charlie. Soon. Do you really think they'll move that fast? 
I don't know, but can we take the chance? Charlie lay next to Jamel in the dim light shining through the blinds, but both of them found sleep impossible. He diverted the talk to the Yankees or the upcoming Dempsey-Tunney fight, but the conversation always returned to her mission. I need the neon to allow everything to run. One module will boost up the signal and pulses beyond the speed of light, which everyone for the next 200 years on Earth will deem impossible. The second signal will coordinate what I'm doing with the neon, shield it, and get everything working in unison. He nodded and turned on the pillow as he stared at the wall. The alarm clock ticked past one in the morning. He had the distinct feeling as he drifted off he would not sleep in this bed ever again, and he remained halfway between sleep and consciousness. A distinct warning buzzer grew louder as he awoke groggy, but sat up quickly. Jamel had already gone into the back room. As he leaped off the bed, the map's red reflection blazed in from the other room. He shuffled back, still in his boxer shorts, as Jamel asked Alf questions about the map panels. What happened? They've started moving downstate, but they've made a major miscalculation. They are moving toward New York City. I'm not sure how many. Well, that's baloney. I thought you said they were advanced beings. Arrogance is not limited to inferior racers. Their superior attitude allows them to believe they can neither be monitored or stopped. Well, that's how you lose ball games. Jamal looked up and smiled. Right, exactly. Elf played back the actual Aegis transmission. A low-pitched, almost slurring speech translated into English. As incredible as it seemed, Charlie listened to communication between beings from another world. The translation indicated the Avigis instruments had easily found Jamel's landing site upstate. They will, my dear Charlie, head this way for the express purpose of killing me and preventing the Sajons of the past from being warned of their fate. But we need to get the hell out of here right now. Yes, we do. Excuse me, Jamel. Are you sure to create the whole area again would take a considerable effort? Charlie moved up to her. Where can we go where they won't find us? She sat under the flashing map and ran her finger over her chin as she thought. Get the neon, keep it chilled, and return to the tower. If they can trail you, we nick's going by train. I checked a few days back. Colonial Airlines began flights to Boston four months ago. That, as they say, Charlie, is the ticket. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 14. The weather changed and the day broke clearer and cooler. Carrying the suitcases, they took a taxi to the airfield. From the hangar, Charlie spoke quickly into the phone, making arrangements for a room located in a Boston show district called Scully Square. With the room in the city, they could make attempts to contact Friedman and pay him whatever it took to get the neon. They would carefully slip back into New York and attempt to activate the transmitter atop the gallery. Charlie walked across the hangar and wagged the tickets in his hand. He had not slept and his eyes stung. Every face around him aroused suspicion, and he studied each person entering the long wooden building. Jamal watched a tiny aircraft take off and jumped when he touched her shoulder. Sorry. I just don't know about the Avigis. 
Alf says they're near Poughkeepsie. She hugged him, and then he cupped his hand on her short, shingle-cut hair. Jamel, do you want me to try Friedman now? Doesn't matter. We might as well fly up to Boston first. If we can't persuade him, then we should contact Gifford for help. Charlie gazed back to the cars parked across the grass out front. Speaking of Gifford, I'm surprised he doesn't have all his boys all over the airfield. I think he has orders to stay back. What did you write? Jamel smiled, her tired eyes sparkling. Never mind. History needs to remain intact. Hopefully I haven't done any damage. From the inside of the hangar, a tall, lanky man in a brown flight suit, goggles over his leather cap, strutted through the doorway. The toothpick between his teeth and the thick, dark mustache did not stop him from babbling to the shorter man following him inside. Carrying his flight gear, he stopped about ten feet from Jamal and Charlie. I've been there, I've flown there, right now I've got the new Vega. Lockheed? asked the other man. Well, Northrop designed the damn thing. Listen to this. Four passages and I can cruise at 135. He pointed across the grass to a smooth, sleek little plane with a white-red flaring stripes and a large letter, L, next to the propeller. That son of a bitch gonna make me rich. Langley, how did you ever get a plane like that? I'm in this business to make money, son. Why weren't you down at Long Island? Lindbergh got 25 grand. I don't need the fame. I fly from here to there and get paid for it. Pure and simple. Could have been Lucky Langley and not Lucky Lindy. I was lucky a long time for Lindbergh. Charlie blurted out a half-hearted laugh and Langley spun around. Crimson and pink scar tissue splotches formed a terrain map pattern across his cheek and neck. You fly, kid? Charlie held up his tickets. Yeah, I'm a flyer. Langley sized him up and then strutted over. Where you headed? Boston. I fly up to Boston a dozen times a week. Probably would have saved you a few clams, too. Colonial just started in April. I'll go against that Junkers F-13 any day of the weekend, twice on Sunday. He looked at Jamel's hand. Hey, she ain't your wife. How do you know I'm just too cheap to buy a wedding ring? I like that. <laughs> too bad my plane's filled. I'd fly you the hell up to Boston. Be the flight of your life. You ain't flown until you've flown with Don Langley. Charlie checked his watch. They still had a few minutes until the plane was supposed to take off for Boston. When did you learn to fly like that anyways, Langley? The war? Who says I learned? He asked, slapping Charlie on the back, and Jamel grinned. You ain't saying much. What's there to say? She asked. You eloping? We have... Business, said Charlie, and Langley made the OK sign with his thumb and index finger. We do. You know where we can get some neon, Langley? Nope. But if you want me to fly you to some neon, you call me. Got a card? asked Jamel. Langley took out a pack of matches, ripped off the top, and scrawled his name with a yellow pencil. That's your name, said Charlie. Hey, kid, you're smart. You call any airfield along the East Coast? Oh, hell, even the Midwest, they'll track me down. Maybe we'll use you when we come back to New York. Money up front, and I'll fly you to Paris. I told that to Lindy, but he went off alone. I heard that, said Charlie. Langley pointed both fingers at him, raised his brows, and opened his mouth. Right, right. Then he smacked Charlie on the back again. Langley, you take care. Yee!
Langley lifted his flight gear upward with his right hand and trotted across the grass. You want to fly with him, Charlie? I'm not sure. An older man inside the hangar yelled out information about the flights. Charlie dipped inside the door as the man walked across the hangar. When does the Colonial flight leave for Boston, bud? When do we board? The man smiled and moved toward Charlie. Sir, the plane is out there on the grass. Charlie gazed out to a corrugated silver metal plane on a darker section up front. When you hear the engine, you board the plane. Oh. He went back to Jamel outside. She bent over Alf's carrying case. When do we leave? When we hear the engines, he said, peeking over her shoulder. A depiction of New York State in a flashing red light south of Poughkeepsie glowed on Elf's screen. They're not that far away. I see them emitting their transmissions over New York City. Everything is clear in Boston. She nodded and shut off Elf. The sooner we get out of here, the better. I just hope they don't figure out what we're doing. This could be a trick. We're talking about very advanced beings. Charlie held her shoulders. Maybe, but they know nothing about Earth. I'm not sure. They may have scanned what archives were left. She tightened her brow and looked out over the water. He shook his head. Listen, if they can assume human appearance, they'll still have to act like humans. They could stand out like a sore finger. She looked up and smiled. You mean thumb. Across the field, Langley's Vega bounced along the grass and skimmed the trees before lifting upward. Charlie followed the plane as it looped back and moved low enough to nearly crash into the hangar. There it goes. They both yelled in unison as the plane buzzed overhead. Langley! He helped Jamel up steps built into the corrugated metal wing. And as the propeller spun, they crawled into the airplane. Leaving before the Avigis reached the city, despite the cramped seating, brought a great sense of relief. As the plane prepared to trace the runway... Charlie tried to imagine himself with Lindbergh in the spirit of St. Louis, but Francine and the old man came into his head. He tightened his brow as they closed the outside hatch. And what of E.B.? The old man had such great plans for him. Charlie, now in the middle of something unparalleled in his life, closed his eyes. He visualized the Connecticut house and then the tower with all its power and glory. For a moment, he sensed his body free-falling. Then he felt Jamel's warmer hand as the plane turned. He smiled and squeezed her hand tightly. Soon the plane moved into a proper alignment on the field. Again, he empathized with Lindbergh as they gained speed. His stomach went from unsettled to queasy, yet he opened his eyes once they lifted into the air currents. As the plane ascended into the morning air, Manhattan's honeycomb buildings and smokestacks came into view. Beyond the East River and left of the gas tanks, the tower, bold in the sunlight, faded as the plane drifted over the blue Atlantic. He glanced at Jamel and then closed his eyes. For 45 minutes, Charlie held the seat edge and hoped the plane's jostling would cease. Oh boy, I've never been in such a machine, said Jamel. I've flown through space at near the speed of light or back through time on the rarest ship, but never so close to the ground. Think of it, Charlie, air flight in its infancy. I'm thinking of my stomach. No bacon and eggs next time I fly. Charlie studied the folded map. With Elf strapped to her shoulder and her eyes bright, Jamel smiled as they veered north toward Boston. 
He thought about Colonel Lindbergh's achievement for a few minutes, yet the Avegis again surfaced into his consciousness. Alf's last report recounted these beings heading south at 40 miles an hour. He visualized these creatures in their assumed form, traveling down the highway, speaking in an unknown language as they followed Jamal's faint trail from the Rara ship. Jamal added another unsettling fact as they flew over Rhode Island's coast. Most life forms in the future use something called ETOR beams, intense energy comparable to lightning fired from a handheld weapon. People who were struck by lightning did not survive, and she assumed that these Avigis were fully armed. The plane lurched as they banked toward Boston, swept over the ocean, and slowly descended above the water toward an airfield east of the city. Boston, less dense than New York, had a smaller spread of buildings and nothing comparable to the tower, but they did have a couple of baseball teams. Jamel awakened when they hit the ground, and Charlie held her hand. Welcome to Boston, Massachusetts, home of the last place Red Sox. Home of Max Friedman in the insulated neon. Yanks are coming to town, said Charlie as the engine revved and the plane slowed across the grass. Well, I'm sure Friedman will be overjoyed to hear that. Charlie looked out the subway window as the car slowed. A maroon and yellow mosaic appeared at the next stop. Scully Square Under. He lifted the two suitcases and guided Jamel through the crowd up the stairs to the street. Daylight pushed into the underground subway cavern, and when they emerged, he looked up at a massive stone arch station built in 1898. He stopped only to light a lucky, and then they blended into the center of activity. A large gazebo to its right marked the beginning of a wild area brimming with sailors, burlesque houses, and vaudeville shows. Tattoo parlors were prevalent, and an odd steaming tea kettle protruded from one of the buildings. He asked directions from one of the locals, gave the rented apartment's address, and in a few minutes, they squeezed down a side alleyway. He located the top floor flat, reached only by an exterior weathered wooden staircase. They trudged up the creaky stairs. He turned near the landing's unpainted oak door and panned the busy street below. For a moment, he thought he saw someone watching him from a car across the street. The traffic moved by, but the well-dressed guy with the dark-brim hat had left the area. What is it? asked Jamel. Can you have Alf check the area for those things? His heart thumped against his chest, and he studied everyone on the street and sidewalk. Jamel pushed several buttons, and Alf's magenta screen lit with a moving schematic depiction of the street. If the Avijis are in human form, they would physically appear in human form, Charlie. I can track them through New York State because they foolishly keep using radio frequencies with their ships in the mountains, said Jamel. So it's possible they could be spying on us right now. If they know we're in Boston, I'm going to respect their capabilities. Yep, Charlie turned to the back door. Man on the phone said the flat would be open at noon. He turned the knob and the door swung open. They walked into an older room, trim paint peeling, and lit by torn gold shades. A green tiled bath and kitchenette were in back. Home sweet home. What a dump. It will do. She set Alf on the quilted bedspread and went directly to the back phone on the bedside table. She removed a scrap of paper from her pocket with Friedman's number written in blue ink. Charlie peered out the dirty window. I swear we are being followed, Jamel. We need guns. Hopefully we'll make arrangements and return to New York City. 
She listened on the line and nodded. Yes, operator, I need to be connected to the Science Institute. Charlie raced for the door when he saw the guy looking up from the doorway of a barbershop across the street. He ran onto the landing as Jamel asked to speak with Friedman, and then the chump ducked behind the barber pole. Mighty odd. She turned and gripped the large receiver. They were awkward and inappropriate from what I remember them during my time on Sajian. Loud noise bothers them. It irritates their audio receptors. What do you see, Charlie? She pulled the receiver closer to her ear. No, I need to talk with Dr. Friedman. It's very important. When? No, the number here is Cedar 86838. My name is Jamel. Please tell him I need to speak with him today. It's vital. Charlie alternated glances between the fluid street movement on the magenta screen. A sweep of blue dots appeared like a locust plague. There is nothing on the screen, Jamel. All of them gathering in the city would be stupid. But then again, it is stupid to be transmitting signals to each other. Agreed, said Jamel, pulling back the curtain. Then she checked with Alf's readings. I can still see them admitting their transmissions near New York City. Everything is clear in Boston. Charlie looked through the dirty glass again, but did not see the guy. I'm losing my mind. Beings from another planet, another time? I have trouble believing this whole thing. She put her arms around him and smiled. Locked the door. Charlie kissed her nose. Oh, what have you got in mind? Not what you think. She shook her head. I should have shown you Sajin under the attack. A long time ago. I've been so busy on the transmitter. What do you mean you're going to show me? You have photographs? She grinned. You are so, so Charlie. Charlie shook his head, not knowing what she had planned. He turned the bolt as she carried Alf over to the smooth red tablecloth. Are you going to show me a movie? She adjusted something inside the case. I guess you could say that, except you'll be there. Once in a Lifetime Chapter 15 Charlie pulled the ring tabs on every shade until the windows assumed a pale yellow glow. She brought him over to the flowery sofa, separating the two rooms. Elf's inner lights cast orange and blue beams over the cracked plaster ceiling, and then a magenta mass crept downward onto the walls and the furniture. Everything in the room gradually blended, transfixed within the swirling light. The shades, the entrance to the bedroom, and the outside door were changed into another place. Where are we now? I am converting my own archives into a viable record of the time before and during our departure. So sure, I knew that. How is that possible? Watch, you're being transported in this simulation 6,410 years into the future. My planet orbits Guanoblood, what your culture calls Capella. Wait, this is 6,000 years from now? 6,410. Far enough. A rounded sky dome full of brilliant stars materialize high above them. Dozens of humans in gray flight suits, similar to Jamel's attire at the Lindbergh flight, darted across a wide-open, murky plain. Charlie held the edge of the cushion and leaned forward as smaller, pale apricot creatures with blue eyes the size of a fist, clad in crimson robes, worked alongside the humans. 
Ahead, a wide ramp sloped down to the right, and red lights flashed on the walls. He grabbed Jamel when the entire room shook. What happened? I can have Elf stop. No, no, I want to see this. Several spheres, maybe moons, textured and woven with yellow threads, expanded in the starry skies. He pointed upward. What's that? Aviji's colony ships. If not for our own defenses, they would have destroyed the outport. This is where we send our rarer ships back through time. Be prepared. They are about to fire large-scale e-tour beams at the outport. Charlie pushed back into the sofa as the activity continued. A green bolt from one of the colony ships, beginning as a small dot, spread across the heavens and splattered like paint, rocking the outport again. Sagians and humans gazed upward, and others scattered down the ramp. He covered his head with one of the cushions. Elf, Elf, scan the Avigis in the outport. The Avigis were at the outport. Avigis infiltrated the area. I wanted you to see them. Across the room, near an outside window span overlooking space, two taller humans with wide shoulders stood rigid as they gazed outside. There was so much confusion, Charlie. We never knew they were among us until it was almost too late. The two Avigis, magnified by Elf, both human in appearance and over six feet tall. They moved in short, jerky motions across the outport, turning abruptly as they walked rigidly toward the ramp. They covered their ears with muted covers as each thunderous beam hit. Where are they going? Down the ramp to the rarer ships. Somehow Elf moved the entire conversion closer to the two of Aegis. Look closely at their belt packs. They're going to attempt to sabotage the rarer ship. The Avigis skirted the ramp tunnel and emerged onto a flat blue expanse area like an open cornfield in Ohio. Five linear black tubes were aligned on iridescent aqua roadways, extending to the glowing green sea horizon against a black sky. The rare ships were five in total. The ship on the left with the archives is presently in upstate New York. Then my ship. The two men on the right, nearing the opening to the first rarer ship, are my friends and colleagues, Ugas and Crispin. In Elf's conversion, Jamel approached the two men, one tall and lanky, and the other, a shorter, dark-haired man, also in a gray flight suit. They were unaware that the Avigis, moving awkwardly, were descending the ramp into an open area and simply blended in with the humans and the Asagian allies. We just worked all night putting the archives into the rarer ship. So it's all in that ship right now. What we have to do is release that module and get it into my transmitter. All of human and Sagian history leading up to this final attack is contained in those archives. The future demise will be prevented if I can transmit this and the events preceding the outport's destruction to the Sagians of the present. You mean 1927. Your civilization has that designation. Did anyone fight the Avigis before this? asked Charlie, looking at the two Avigis lurking along the platform. Oh yes, and it's so sad. You're looking at the final holdout of humans and Sagians after the Avigis' 75-year battle with their creators. We never even knew of the Avigis, only their creators. The bioenergy creations were the ultimate weapon against us. The Avigis even destroyed their own creators. From the beginning, 75 years before, our planets were attacked without warning. We could never recover. Earth was one of the first planets to go. This Earth? Of the future, Charlie. Etor beams destroyed the surface and caused the oceans to rise. 
humanity was entirely destroyed on Earth. Earth and the Sagerns were each other's protector. No one wanted to believe the Avigis would create bioenergy beings that would destroy them and then our collective civilizations. Even now here on Earth, people just are not seeing the rising evil. What evil? Even Lindbergh. I don't understand. Not necessary to. I will transmit the archives of the future destruction during your time period, Charlie. The original Sagerns will be warned and we can stop the Avigis before they can even create bioenergy beings that destroyed them. Why did they destroy their own creators? asked Charlie. They were designed to initiate freedom, and when their creators became an impediment to their own freedom, they decimated the race, and now freedom is threatened again in this time. Why 1927? Why this year? It's where I ended up. You're saying there's something from this year that relates to events 6,000 years from now? Could have been any year. Guess I just got lucky, Mr. Russo, she said and held his hand. He raised his brow and had the urge to light a lucky as the simulation resumed. Jamel, depicted in the midst of humans and pale, wide-eyed Sagians, hugged two men, Ugas and Crispin. They shook hands and embraced some of the smaller Sagians before they entered the rarer ship. A few minutes later, as the outport continued to shake under the Avigis attack, the remaining Sagians left the ship, and the outer panel slid into place. Now watch the Avigis. We had no idea they had infiltrated the outport. Tears rolled down her cheek, and he held her close. One of the Avigis reached ever so slowly into his belt pack. Keep your eye on the Sagians behind them. The being held a small silver sphere. He moved with his comrades along the platform toward the first rarer ship. The three Sagians produced their own weapons, a chrome shell with chambers extending over their nimble fingers. Quick red bursts hit the Avigis, knocking them to the ground. But the Avigis had released the spheres. As everyone turned, two humans ran forward and scooped up the rolling spheres. The other soldiers in red and gold uniforms rushed down the ramp and took the spheres from the humans. They sent the Etor grenades into the airlocks, Charlie. One of the soldiers locked arms and pushed back anyone in the area. Others fired their weapons again, and the, and the ensuing explosions caused Charlie to shield his eyes. The room rocked. When the light dissipated, black-green smoke rose from two jagged craters, maybe ten feet in diameter, overlapping and cutting into the platform. The grenades? No, love. That was an Avigis imploding. That's what happens when they're shot? Very, very dangerous. Didn't they destroy the Rara ship with their grenades? asked Charlie. This is so real. Wait until you see the Rara ship move into the continuum. The soldiers, both Sajian and human, wore the same yellow and red uniforms and checked everyone on the platform while everyone else moved up the ramp. Jamel and the others surveyed the craters with silver scanning instruments. The tubular black Rara ship, vapors spewing from the top, remained sealed to the outside. Both the Sagians and humans retreated back to the platform. An escalated hum filled the air, and the Rara ship began a slow roll down the aqua ramp. There are immense compression fields surrounding the outport, fields that have the Rara ship in its grasp. The extended thin black cylinder shot away from the platform so rapidly that the vast sheets of wavering aqua light condensed to form a linear trail. With a prodigious rumble, a red flash split the space near the green horizon. Where is it? 
asked Charlie, beginning its journey toward the continuum, she said as the apartment phone rang. It was like a tunnel between points in time. Elf, deactivate the simulation. The room darkened and Charlie saw the room shades again as Jamel crossed the flat and picked up the phone. Hello, yes, this is Jamel. Dr. Friedman. Good, said Charlie, and he followed her and sat on the bed. Yes, Dr. Friedman, I was told by a Mr. Buckley from the Buckley Chemical Company in New Jersey that you have neon gas containers, four liters, chilled to minus 20 Celsius. I don't think it really matters what we're going to use the neon for. Qualifications for what? I'm aware of neon's properties. I merely need to purchase. The Bureau of Investigation told you what? Oh, swell, said Charlie, rolling his eyes. Then Gifford cleared us. Okay. Please, Doctor, this neon is critical. I don't think you have to worry about the Institute. Well, I'm sorry, too. She set down the phone. Gifford called, warning him after we were at Buckley's office. But then he called a second time after my note and exonerated us. Friedman is just afraid the Institute will get upset and his position will be jeopardized if he gives us the canisters. Get me Friedman's office. Charlie waited as she talked to the operator. A few minutes later, Friedman came on the line again and Charlie took the phone. Yes, who is this? This is Dr. Friedman. I work with Jamel. Listen, we need the neon in the canisters. As I told that young lady, I would be compromising my position here at the Institute if I were to indiscriminately hand out Institute property. I am a man of principles. We'll give you 500 bucks if you deliver the canisters to us. When Friedman said nothing for a few seconds, Charlie sensed a deal. Well, doctor? I want 500 up front and another 500 when I get you the canisters. Charlie winked at Jamel and nodded his head. We need to meet you. We're in Scully Square. Scully Square. I can meet you at the old Marlboro Theater or at the Rexford House. Make it the old Marlboro. Where is that? asked Charlie. Just ask anyone. Okay, at eight. We'll be in the first few rows. My name is Russo. I have thinning blonde hair. And Jamel has short brown hair. I will be in a cocky suit. I wear glasses and have short gray hair. We'll be there. The old Marlboro, said Charlie, hanging up the phone. He turned to Jamel, folded his hands, and with a whimsical expression on his face, he leaned toward her. Everyone, my dear, has a price. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 16. Jamel stared at the prodigious hot dog lodged in Charlie's hands as they wandered through the crowd. What did the guy put on the hot dog? He bit into the roll and held it out. Then he spoke as he chewed. First he takes out the steam bun, spreads the onions, relish, pops, and he pops in the dog and paints on the mustard. I dare say I wouldn't sustain myself on such a concoction for a lengthy period. He savored the combination in his mouth and bit again. Mmm, heaven. Want some? No thanks. Through the crowd he caught sight of a stone building with arched windows looking more like a church than a theater. She pointed up to the long sign. Old Marlborough. Although captivated with the activity in the square, the wide variety of people in the nightlife, Charlie wondered about the conversation Alf had projected back in the flat. 
Jamal promised him she would again activate other conversations if she had the time. Charlie stood on his tiptoes and tried to look above the crowd. Over there, by the doorman. Is that the guy you saw this afternoon? Elf, can you scan? No unusual readings. No, that's not it. I swear, I just saw some of the Yankees in the crowd. Oh, really? She asked as they got in line. Charlie looked up again. They are in town for the Boston series. I suggest we worry about meeting Friedman. I only hope he lives up to his word. Charlie turned from the crowd and faced her. 500 bucks says he will live up to his word. If we can get the canisters tomorrow, we can be in New York tomorrow night. Alf will have to insulate them. Charlie nodded and scanned the street for the Yankees and anything else unusual. Listen, once Friedman gets us the canisters, I'll call Herbie and he'll have the gallery open. I'll have just a few hours of adjustments as well as time to feed the neon into the system. He looked into the theater lobby as they moved up in line and he smiled. Damn, I just thought I saw the babe. George Herman Babe Ruth, born 1895. He modeled his swing after Joe Jackson. He did? How did you know that, Alf? Well, Ruth said he did it. Then Charlie heard Babe Ruth's voice pipe through Alf's speakers. I copied my swing after Joe Jackson. She's the perfectest. Wow. An interesting character in any age. His father ran a saloon in Baltimore, but the kid was unruly. They put him in a Catholic orphanage. Brother Matthias taught him the game. Then Charlie pinched his chin. You've been studying up on the babe, Alf. How come? I study many people back in this time period. Oh, and another thing. Jamel, how long will it take to send that signal? Will anyone see the transmission? Actually, the transmitting won't take long. The pulses will be seen, but it will be the middle of the night, Charlie. At the window, Charlie purchased the tickets for seats in the third row, and they moved in with the throng inside the musty theater. They sat near the aisle for the longest time as the little piano player with long arms and nimble fingers banged out a ragtime tune. Ira Beringer, she said. You learn fast. Anatolia's halftime band, said Elf on the floor. That's cheating. Besides, Elf's going to get us all pinched. Pinched? Arrested. When the tune ended, Charlie and a few others were the only ones applauding. A monkey and an organ grinder skipped out on stage and performed a circus routine. They were followed by a couple who danced precisely in front of a forest-painted backdrop. The place slowly filled with people. I want to know, Charlie, what about this entertainment? What was it called? Elf? Fordaville. I never researched these shows. They went from city to city. These acts were before the true advent of motion pictures and later video and virtual web transmissions. Web transmissions? What's that, like an antenna? You're right on track, Charlie, but not quite. Right, he said, checking his watch. Where the heck is Friedman? Let's snoop around. He is late. They stepped back up in the aisle and then meandered through the lobby, past a line to the men's room near the stage area out back. With the quick roll of the piano, another act finished up. Just as quickly, a man and a woman walked on stage and from the laughter started a comedy routine. A spontaneous art form. Very good, very good, said Jamel as they crept along the narrow hallway between the dressing rooms. 
Well, how else would they be? Oh, things became pretty contrived everywhere by the end of the century. Give me the unabashed any day. Here, here. A side door opened up a few feet ahead. Charlie stopped in the low light as a large-framed, enormous cut of a man in a brown sport coat and open silk shirt stepped outside with a smoldering cigar popped in his mouth. Charlie recognized the wide face and the big eyes. Mother McCree. How are you, kid? The larger man's paw enveloped Charlie's hand. You gonna break that record, babe? Well, I'm sure gonna try. Nice to see you. He stood motionless as Ruth lumbered down the hall and into the darkness. He turned to Jamel, his throat tightened as he tried to speak. Babe, Ruth, he whispered as if someone were choking his throat. That really was Babe Ruth, she said. The door to his right shut and Charlie held her shoulders. I shook his hand. I shook the babe's hand. That's the hand that slams those home runs and I shook it. You did. I wish Joel Finkelstein were here now. Joel Finkelstein? One of the guys I go to the games with. Babe Ruth. Holy Toledo. At 8.15, Charlie checked his watch. He shook his head as a bulbous woman in a tight maroon velvet dress attempted an opera performance on stage, but the booing persisted. Charlie half laughed, but stared at the third row of seats and up the aisles. He's a double-crosser. She smiled. Who, the babe? No, the babe's the real thing. I mean, Friedman. Where is he? She shrugged her shoulders and held his hand. For 500, he should have been here. Let's go out into the lobby. The crowd applauded as the woman waddled off stage. They were about halfway up the aisle when the catcall started and the music temple changed. A fan dancer waving colorful feathers and tassels pranced out on stage. On the other hand, Jamal, we don't have to rush out to see Friedman. Dainty Dot and her flying feathers. Come on, love. Charlie smiled and glanced at the scattering feathers and eyed the audience of sailors, bald heads in the dark shadows, and back into the lobby. When they rounded the corner, a short man with glasses and gray hair, wearing a light suit, paced near the doors. That has to be him. I told him inside. Doesn't matter, he's here. Charlie nodded as he stepped outside. Dr. Friedman? The man spun around on the sidewalk but kept looking back toward the street. Russo? Yeah. I'm very nervous about this. Do you have your money? Do you have the canisters? I do. They are compressed and packed, and I will deliver them tomorrow wherever you say. Charlie removed an envelope from his coat. Inside were five new $100 bills printed earlier by Elf. Freeman's eyes darted. He quickly pulled out the money, counted it, and stuffed it in his pocket. What did you do, Robert Bank? No, we printed the denominations, said Jamel with a grin. Oh, yes, yes, I see your humor. He checked the lobby again. You know I'm putting my position in jeopardy. And you know we just put 500 bucks in your hand, bud. Where do I deliver the canisters? Yanks play Boston tomorrow, doubleheader. Meet us inside Fenway Park and we'll go to your car. We'll be in the right field grandstands both games. Don't blow it, Friedman. You were supposed to meet us inside tonight. I didn't want anyone seeing me inside. The old Marlboro. Very risque. Very. Jamel whispered in Charlie's ear. Yet he knew where it was, didn't he? You'll get your money. Just get us the neon. Right field grandstand. I assure you I'll be there. 
I'll have no compunction again about being seen in Fenway Park. It will not be an embarrassment. The way the Red Sox are playing, it could be a big embarrassment, said Charlie, lighting a lucky. Friedman's lips wrinkled like a dried-out piece of cake frosting, and his nose tightened as he peered at Charlie. I will see you at the ballpark. Good evening. Friedman merged into the crowd, and Charlie shook his head. If he doesn't show, I'm going right over to that institute and shake the 500 out of him. I think he'll be at the ballpark. Then you can call Herbie. We're almost there, Charlie. It won't be much longer until I transmit. When we get back to the flat, I'll check on the Avegis in New York. Charlie took two steps back toward the theater. Where are you going? Dainty Dot. She's still on stage. She walked slowly over to him and took his arm. I think you need to go back to the flat. Oh, yes, she said, running her fingers along his cheek. You really look tired. Me? I feel fine. I'm not tired. She took his arm and led him back along the sidewalk. Oh, yes, you're quite tired. Only you won't be getting much sleep tonight. Very risque. Very. Once in a Lifetime. Chapter 17. Ellery returned from the inner room where Russo and Jamel had housed the chrome device before they left for Boston. The large agent lifted his brows and shrugged his shoulders. Gifford set his briefcase on the wooden floor and put his hands on his hips and looked around the high-ceiling apartment. He exhaled slowly to relax. Ellery stuffed another handful of nuts into his mouth, and Gifford turned to Perkins. Amazing. Hey, Giff, said Ellery, still chewing. They got rid of everything, even the map. Now I find this whole thing odd, very odd. They outsmarted you, Giff, said Ellery. Gifford sneered and walked across the room. Let's get out of here. Whoops! Ellery downturned his mouth and tiptoed by Gifford. Listen, while I'm on vacation, just make sure you get the reports from Boston. Continue to have them followed, said Gifford as they reached the outer door. Where are you going on vacation, Giff? Well, my wife and I are taking the girls down to Atlantic City and then to a cottage along the shore. I feel like I haven't given those kids enough time. You need a break. Right. Gifford twisted his lips in a wide circle. I'm concerned about Russo and Jamel. I don't even want to speculate, but I'm shielding everyone in Washington as much as possible from what we do find out. He shut the door and they started toward the freight elevator. What did she write in that note, Giff? asked Ellery, still munching and crunching. Something about the boss, wasn't it? The boss did something weird, right? Ellery? You wait until you chew what's in your mouth before you talk. As far as what she wrote, that's no one's concern, especially yours. Sorry, Giff. Gifford nodded and closed his eyes for a second. Ellery opened the metal cage, and they stepped inside the elevator. Then he closed the cage, and Perkins pulled the cable, and the car started down. As I was saying, I'm leaving our number to the hotel and to the main office near the cottages. If anything happens with Russo, you call me. Sue is aware that this is still a volatile situation. Of course, I haven't told her any of the particulars. Ellery held the nuts in his hand before speaking. I was told that I would be strung up by my... You will be. Nobody knows anything about this H.G. Wells stuff that's been going on here. The elevator squealed to a rough, shaky stop. Ellery fumbled with the cage and then slid it open. Gifford and Perkins quickly exited the building into the evening air, passed Russo's 62, and stepped onto the sidewalk. 
Gifford had parked his own car around the block toward Central Park. Perkins hit Gifford's arm as they walked. There was nothing in Russo's car, Giff, except those old Yankee programs. Yanks haven't dropped out of first place, Giff, said Ellery, speaking with his mouth stuffed again. Who cares about the Yankees? Gifford moved ahead of them and around the corner to his car. He gazed at the brick building in front of Jamel's flat. Then he opened his car door and got behind the wheel. You know, Perkins, Russo had it made. Old man Rumford liked him. He had a good job, and he would have gone up the ladder. The daughter fooled around. Yeah, I heard that. Well, I don't blame Russo for bowing out, said Gifford, smiling as he checked the back seat. For pulling over that circus tent at the Gables? asked Perkins, laughing. Gifford kept smiling. Well, it, it was an accident, but they all were uppity-ups, including that banana-head Dillingham. Gifford leaned over the back seat. Cripes, I left my briefcase inside that flat. I'll get it, Giff, said Ellery. Well, that's awful nice of you, Ellery. He had a mouthful of nuts again as he popped open the sedan door. Who be What did he say? asked Perkins. Ellery wobbled down the sidewalk, dipped his hand into the bag, and disappeared around the corner. Gifford closed his eyes and shook his head. I think he said something about earning his own way. Gifford sat back and cupped his hands behind his head. I look forward, Perkins, to putting my little pinkies in the surf, walking the boardwalk, ride the Ferris wheel, eat some cotton candy. Right, right, right. My girls love it when I win at those carnival games. You know, you can shoot the pellet guns for stuffed animals. They shouldn't allow you to shoot, Giff. It'd be like letting Dempsey go around beating up people in bars. Jack will beat Tunney. You want to put a little money on it, Gifford? Yeah, even money, 20 bucks, said Gifford. You got it. Don't spend too much in Atlantic City. You may have to pay up. Gifford smiled and crossed his arms as a huge flash of green light illuminated the building walls around him. And then he had to shield his eyes. With a long rumble, the streetlights went dark. The ground shook the car hard enough to knock Gifford onto the seat. What the hell was that? He reached for the handle and then kicked the door open. Perkins rolled out the other side. Gifford clawed his way up the car as a massive gray-brown cloud spread upward into the night and above the surrounding buildings. He ran around the hood to Perkins. You all right? Yeah. But what about Ellery? Gifford's eyes ratcheted open and his stomach flipped. Jesus. They drew their guns and ran down the sidewalk and rounded the street corner. Gifford stopped abruptly at the corner curb and held out his arm to keep Perkins back. A distinct burnt ozone odor and a thin haze hung over the block. Like flour sifted into a bowl, a fine crystalline white dust rained over the smoldering spot where Jamal's apartment stood only a few minutes before. Gifford now had an unobstructed view of the park. You've got to be shitting me. Gifford looked at Perkins and then toward the park before he shuffled through the dust. When he reached the far curb, he squatted down and picked up the ash in his hands. Ellery, Ellery, dear God. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 18 Fenway Park's cozy, unique character had a sweep of green grass that sloped upward from the third base site to the high left field wall blanketed with numerous advertisements. Like New York, the same mixture of food and cigar aromas drifted around Fenway. Charlie liked being closer to the game here in Boston. 
Not many people filled the stands for a team 40 games out of first place. He finished a beer and held a scorecard and pencil in his hands. Jamel fidgeted in the grandstand seat and twisted around to the ramp. I heard this place was a real ballpark, and it is. Her foot moved up and down. You are right, Jamel? I'm just worried about Friedman. He'll show. He wants the money. I have a bad feeling, Charlie. I can't put my finger on it. He looped his arm around her. Relax. This thing is on ice. Charlie, this is critical. He cheered when the Yankees got three hits, but when he explained the game to Jamel, she responded with one-word answers. In the sixth, Ruth seemed destined for a walk. On an 0-3 count, the bay produced a mighty swing, and a distinct crack echoed throughout the ballpark. The ball trailed into the sky and disappeared over the upper fence as the babe trotted around the base paths. Even his old Boston fans could appreciate the smash. Charlie stood and cheered as Ruth jaunted home. That has to be the farthest damn shot ever hit in this place. And I shook his hand last night. Absorbed in thought again, she scanned above the stands. Did you say something, Charlie? The big palooka. He just belted one. Oh, good. He shook his head and sat down. Look, Friedman will show. This is a doubleheader. The scattered crowd only exacerbated Jamel's silence throughout the game. Charlie began to wonder whether someone had diverted the professor, or maybe he just pocketed the 500. To pass the time, he kept score and jumped out of his seat again when Ruth hit a second blast in the seventh that actually bounced off the concrete near them. As the game ended, he tried to reassure her that Friedman would appear at the second game. Chalk that one up for Pennock. Thank you, boys. Joel won't even know this till they mention it on the radio. She stared at the field as the groundskeepers came out to prepare for the second game. Let's go get some food. She nodded and strapped Alf over her shoulder, and they moved down the steps to the ramp leading to the concession below the grandstand. Two more home runs for the babe. He's on his way to breaking his record, Charlie. But does he? She twisted her mouth as they got in line. Fans darted back and forth. Possible. Charlie moved up to the counter. Give me two dogs and a beer, Jamel. Pretzel, please. Drink water. Water is fine. Charlie leaned over. Then he heard the babe's voice again inside the box. I don't ever suppose I'll break that 1921 record. For that, you got to start early. And the pitchers have to pitch to you. I don't start early, and the pitchers have been pitched to me in four seasons. I get more bad balls to hit than any other six men. And a few this one. You both drive me nuts. Let's see, today is September 6th. I can make big money on this, you know. After all, I'm out of a job. The guy behind the counter handed him the beer. He gulped and smacked his lips. Hits a spot. He handed her the pretzel and then the paper cup. Once he paid and had the two hot dogs in his hand, they headed for the ramp. That annoying left field wall, studded with advertisements, rolled over the grass. As he panned the crowd in the seats behind them, he spotted Gifford with two other men. Gifford? What are they doing here? asked Jamel. He hates the Yankees. I don't even think he's a Boston fan. This is trouble. As Ellery bit into a mustard-smeared hot dog, Charlie led Jamel quickly up the stairs. Where's Friedman, she shouted. Gifford opened his dark eyes when he heard her. I have your knee on. It's in two canisters back in my car.
Giff, decided to make a little trip, eh? Russo, we have a massive problem. What's the problem? asked Charlie. Her apartment in New York. What about my apartment? It's... it's gone. I mean, gone. Russo's car, the 62, gone. You won't hear H.V. Kaltenborn reporting it, believe me. Besides, we officially call it a gas leak. How can it be gone? asked Charlie. No, don't tell me. Jamel had a faraway look in her eyes. Ellery wiped his mouth. I was right there. It just flashed out of sight. Avegis. Jamel held Charlie's arms. Etor beams, he whispered. She shook her head. Grenade etors. Gifford tilted forward in the seat. What are you two mumbling about? I want to know what we're dealing with here. People above me are asking questions. We stay clear of everything. Nobody even knows we're in Boston. Listen, obviously there are Martians after you. It's farther away than Mars, said Charlie. Is that the extent of it? Who the hell are you? I need the canisters, she said. Answer me, who are you? I almost lost a man out there last night, said Gifford, growing angry. If I hadn't dropped my nuts, said Ellery. Charlie smiled and then broke into a laugh. You did what? My nuts. I dropped them on the sidewalk. Ellery, shut up. With a slight smile, Jamel crossed her arms. Mr. Gifford, do you really want me to tell you about something that you have no control over? Well, probably not. He sat back, folded his arms, and shook his head. I'm supposed to be swimming on the Jersey Shore right now. Instead, I've got buildings vanishing out of existence. I have to fly up here, and you're telling me there's nothing I can do about it. Yes. And you're not going to tell me what I'm dealing with. Correct. Gifford clenched his fist under his chin and looked at Perkins. You win. The neon in the trunk is chilled, according to Friedman. Friedman says he doesn't know how long you can keep it chilled. And by the way, the payment is 500 I'll get it over to the Institute. Five bills, Giff, said Charlie, depositing the cash in his hand. Gifford stared at the money and squinted. What's the problem, Giff? I have absolutely nothing to say, Russo. Absolutely nothing. We'll take care of insulating the canisters, said Jamel. You need to get us to New York. Oh, really? What the hell do you think? I'm running an airplane service? Charlie produced a large grin and Gifford pointed at him. Not funny, Russo. I'm sure if you can get us to New York, Mr. Gifford, said Jamel. Giff has all kinds of connections, said Ellery. Gifford stared at him until he rolled his eyes and looked away. Okay, said Gifford as they moved down the steps. I told you I had people in high places asking me questions. I suggest, Mr. Gifford, they remind those who are asking questions that certain other personal questions can be asked of them. Don't remind me. I'll call Logan Field. Let's go. Gifford stopped and looked down the right field line toward the plate. Short right field. You want to stay for the second game, Giff? Ruth had two home runs last game, said Charlie. Two things, Russo. One, Ruth will fall flat in his little home run quest. Two, too much nightlife, and he'll never break that record. Second, what's the second? I hate the Yankees. Next week, we'll see how Charlie and Jamel get the neon back to the transmitter in New York City. It's not the way you think. 
and there's lots of action from all the angles with Langley up there in the sky flying his airplane. It's never easy or would have a boring book. I'm Robert P. Fitton flying westward to Niagara Falls. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.